Hello, all. Welcome to the Random Thought Pod. I am your random thought leader, Bridge Lavoie, and today I am here with Dana Hicks, the author of The Knot, How to Secure Healthy Relationships While Not Being Tied to Marriage's Past. Hello, Dana. Welcome to the Random hey. Thought Pod. Thanks, Bridge. Thanks so much for uh, reaching out. It's great to, great to be with you. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here. I, you know, it's funny, like when you like book titles, I always like shorten book titles, you know, like it's always like the knot and it's like, and I'll forget what the rest of it is. Right, right, just right. funny how those yeah. book titles work that way. I guess nobody ever has yeah, an actual sure. short book title, do they? Well, you know, I'll, you, you probably aren't surprised to hear that we spent a disproportionate amount of time talking about the title and how we're gonna <laughs> the subtitle and trying to wordsmith all that to make it you know be what we want it to be but uh but yeah it took it took several iterations of uh of working through it to try to get to that title and to try to keep it simple yeah i can see that because it's like if somebody is gonna read a book called the knot it's like well i don't know what it's going to be about so you need that subtitle don't you yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, All want, right. you know, so, and what's funny too, and you'll, and I'm sure you'll, this will come up in our conversation, but I mean, it's not a typical marriage book. It's not like a, you know, here's 10 steps to a better marriage kind of thing. That's not yeah. where I'm going with it. Uh, you know, it's, uh, hopefully it's a random thought sort of lead, leadership, <laughs> right? I guess same, same kind of deal. Yeah. It's, uh, it, trying to, trying to take a fresh look at, at the institution itself. So. Yeah, no, and that, and that's eye opening. It's funny, like I don't realize until I go to like review my notes on a podcast, like to that um, how much like the books I read actually impact me because I'll, I'll read it and I'll be like, oh, I thought I I thought I came up with that myself, but it's like no, I think I got it from this book. <laughs> so yeah, so this is true. always very helpful. I I love <laughs> I love this. It's like, and it, there'll be times where I'm like uh, reading a book and I'll, I'll say to my wife, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to talk to the author about this part. And she just kind of looks at me like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I get to talk to the authors, the books I read. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of, a, sounds kind of imaginary. <laughs> um, okay. So tell me a bit about yourself. Um, you used to be a pastor. Yeah. Um, you had mm -hmm. two marriages, which ended. Then you mm -hmm. wrote a book about marriage. Yeah, I, yes. The natural path that all marriage authors take, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And in the in the preface of the book, it's funny. I originally thought I'm going to write this book anonymously because once people f figure out that I've been divorced twice, they're going they're going to discount everything I have to say about marriage. You know, that's all they're going to hear, you know, kind of thing. And uh, and actually, it was my friend Tom that uh, talked said, "No, no, you you just got to lean into this and and just you know kind of recognize it for what it is that this is just part of your experience." And uh, so, yeah, I was pastor for 30 years in evangelical tradition, mostly in the evangelical tradition. Spent the, uh, the last three or four years in the United Methodist Church, but but uh, pastor for a long, long time. And um, uh, unrelated to my marriages, uh, ended up walking away from that, uh, more related to COVID and, and everything that was going on. And that was sort of a perfect storm of, of, uh, of why I didn't want to be in that world anymore. But... But uh, yeah, uh, got married for the first time when I was really young, uh, right out of college, where my college sweetheart, and uh, we were married about 19 years, and um, that didn't work out. Um, and then uh, remarried a few years after that to a, to another woman that um, didn't work out real well either. And uh, so uh, we were, we were together about nine years. And so yeah, I kind of uh, was. Um, pretty burned out on the institution, I think at that point. And, um, um, but, but I think where, when I started actually writing this, I, I, I met somebody that sort of helped me rethink my way through a lot of these issues emotionally. And then I uh, felt like there was a lot of things that I couldn't say as a pastor, uh, about marriage and about what I was sort of observing in the people that I was pastoring that uh, I thought I got to put this down on paper because I think it's important. I think there's there's an important conversation to be had here, uh, and I you know, the book isn't an, 
intended to be a like, hey, here's the answer, but it's a way of sort of opening up a conversation to say, I think we can rethink marriage. It's been rethought in the past. It's been reimagined in the past, and I think we can reimagine it for the future. And uh, the world is changing, obviously, and uh, the institution needs to be able to flex with it as, as, the, as the world changes. Yeah, and I found that very eye-opening, like to consider, like, I, I just never thought about how much marriage has changed over time. Um, so you say that there's a 50-50 chance of marriage failing. Actually, I hear that all the time. <laughs> That wasn't a unique thought, no. Um, but you talk about how statistics are different in the church than outside mm -hmm. of it. How do they differ, and why do you think that is? Yeah, the, you know, that 50-50 thing gets thrown out a lot. Um, and, the, of course, there's a lot of nuance to that. 50-50 is a broad oversimplification. You know, the um, yeah. second marriages, you know, don't do as well as first marriages. Third marriages don't do as well as second marriages and so on. Uh, if you live in poverty, your divorce rate is much higher uh, than if you, you know, are middle class, solidly middle class or upper middle class. Um, I mean, there's a lot of variables, obviously. You know, if you come from a healthy family, you're going to, you know, your, your odds of having a successful marriage, you know, or, or a lengthy marriage anyway, uh, certainly goes up. Uh, so it, there's a lot of variability in all that. And then part of the, the weird thing about that, that 50% statistic is that the way they often measured it in the past was they would say they would go to a particular county and they would get the county records and they'd say, well, there were 10,000 people that filed for marriage licenses last year in our county and there were uh, 5,000 people that filed for divorce. So that means that the divorce rate is 50%, that half the people that, because I mean, you don't have a crystal ball to know, you know, that when Joe and Betty go down to file their for a marriage license, whether or not they're gonna make it or not. So that's how people would sort of calculate it. But then the statistics kind of started getting skewed because what ended up happening is people started getting married less. So there were less marriage licenses coming out, but then there were still the same number of divorces. And so it, again, mm. it's hard to sort of measure, you know, or to know what exactly that 50% means. But we do know this, we know that um, one of the really interesting research pieces that I came across uh, in, in researching this book is that the odds of a person uh, getting divorced go up, increase actually, if you're evangelical. And even if you're evangelical adjacent, if you live adjacent to somebody who's evangelical, your odds are, uh, go up to, to get divorced. And the reason that they come up, they, that they, they speculate that that's the case is that, uh, in the even in evangelical culture, there's a lot of emphasis on getting married really young. And yeah. there's a lot of emphasis on, um, uh, having kids young as well. Right. Those are two very big stressors on marriages. And there's yeah. a pretty tight correlation. And the younger you get married, the higher the odds are that you get divorced. And so evangelicals get married young because, frankly, they, they want to get to have sex. And and right. uh, and so as a result, they they uh, their divorce rates are actually higher than the national average. Interesting. Yeah. Um yeah, it's funny because you, you debate all this. Like statistics is like, I'm I'm going to be taking biostatistics, like a course in biostatistics next year, and I'm really excited about it because I'm hoping it kind of changes the way I look at st statistics because it just seems like people use them in whatever way they want to mm -hmm. illustrate the point they want to make, right? And so. But that's that's a really interesting point because I mean you then also talk about like Mark Gunger and how Mark Gunger argues that young men getting married like should get married so that they can mature. And it's like so we're expecting these young ladies to cause these young men to mature. Yeah, I don't I don't want my daughters to be the the, the guinea pigs that, that force some young gentleman to finally figure out to get his crap together on on all this. Yeah, yeah, what a what an odd way to think about it, you know, um that the institution of marriage is supposed to shape people into becoming something that they're not. Um uh I it's kind of frightening. And, and I, I understand that, that, that that's sort of true that, you know, obviously I think for most people you get married and it changes you because of the commitments that you've made and, and, you know, just the, 
the dynamics of what it means to live with another human being i mean it just it forces you to change in some ways but but i'm not sure that putting that burden on on the institution of marriage is very healthy and it hasn't worked out well for for a lot of people yeah yeah well and that's something that's just so embedded in like purity culture and mm -hmm. it's like you can grow up together and it's like that doesn't work for everyone in fact, it seems like a really bad idea. Like it's, it's insane to think that I made a life commitment at the age of 22 mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. know, she was 20 and it's like, and it's working out, but like, wow, like that's a heck of a thing to like be tied to that. And I can see why it wouldn't work for so many people. Um, you talk yeah, about how my all age. I'm sorry, I was gonna say, this is the biology of that, right? Your prefrontal yeah. frontal cortex isn't fully developed until you're, what, 24. So, I mean, yeah, that's your, right. your ability to, to really reason and, and, and think through and make really good lifelong decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, I, tell my, I tell my kids this, you know, uh, in an unrelated uh, uh, deal, you know, when they look at getting tattoos, I tell them, I don't think there's a thought that ever went through my head before I turned the age 30 that would be worth putting on my body for the rest mm. of my life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and the same thing with marriage, right? It's like, I, I, I understand the romantic notion of marrying young, but, uh, but the reality is your prefrontal cortex just isn't developed. You don't understand, you don't understand yourself, much less other people at that yeah. age, you know? Well, and, and it works for some, you know, my parents yeah. just celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. My yeah. dad was 21. My mom was 19 when they got married, uh, you know, it, it's yeah. like, it's, it, I mean, crazy young, but that's how they did it back then. You know, they got married really young and they had babies quick and, and, uh, um, but, um, yeah. I think, you know, the interesting thing too, is like, I always like when I watch these like TV shows where there was like the father is like, we need to break those two up, you know? And I'm like, good luck with that. Like, you know, like when two kids are in love, you're not going to stop them. But I think what we can do is lessen the pressure on them to commit because right. it's like, you know, if they're going to commit, like some, some, some of these kids are just going to commit. Like they just, they just love each other and there's no talking them out of it. And you see that mm -hmm. time and time again in our literature, you know, like every story, like Romeo and Juliet and, you know, it's like, yeah. it's all like, I think it's really reflect, reflecting life because it's like, People in their 20s, you're not going to talk them out of a lot of things. But it's like, how are we conditioning them? Mm -hmm. I, I think is like the big point here, I think. And so like monogamy, monogamy itself, you say, um, originated as a means of protecting property. Um, can you talk about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this gets way back to the very, very origins of marriage. Marriage didn't exist until the uh, agricultural revolution. You know, if you think about uh, humanity and uh, the way in which we we evolved, you know, we were hunter gatherers for millions of years. We just kind of wandered around, and the idea of owning property was absurd because what what's there to own? I mean, we, yeah. you just kind of wandered around and you went from place to place, you know, foraging for food. When, when the agricultural revolution began, you know, human beings put seeds in the ground and discovered that, whoa, plants come out when you do that. And mm -hmm. now all of a sudden, there's no need to wander around. We, we can stay in one place. And food went from uh, being this thing that we had to do to survive to being a, a, a pathway to wealth. And so right. for the first time ever, if you owned property, if you had property, you could plant crops, you could generate wealth, and then you could ask different questions beyond the questions of survival. And so in the context of the that whole uh, agricultural revolution is where uh, marriage begins, because now all of a sudden women went from being partners in foraging for hunting and gathering to being a a, a, a a patriarchy sort of develops right where men do the work women stay home take care of the kids uh i have i need to pass on my property and my land to my descendants and so right. i need to have 
legitimacy and know who really are my descendants. And so this is how marriage begins. Now I own this woman and I own these children and uh, I'm able to pass on my, my wealth to the children. So marriage, that's the invention of marriage. That's when it first, first came about. And uh, of course it's obviously it's evolved quite a bit over the years. Uh, but for most of marriage's history, you know, we, we saw women as property of men and uh as as things to be controlled in a very patriarchal world and that's not a surprise to your listeners i mean we still live in many ways in a patriarchal world it still have the the you know leftovers residual effects of of all of that yeah. but uh but yeah that's that's how it all sort of began and uh uh so seeing women as property like in and then purity came about not not so much and you see this in the, in the hebrew scriptures as well Purity comes about not because, uh, you know, we want our want our women to be morally pure, but we want them to be um, unadulterated in the sense of, you know, in the same way, if you sold a cow to your neighbor, you wouldn't want the cow to have blemishes on it either. You know, you want the cow to be perfect. In the same way, when you sit, get a dowry for your daughter, you want your, you know, daughter to be pure in the sense of, you know, they haven't been around the block kind of thing. And so, you know, uh, what the what the customer is getting is is a better product. So wow. purity wasn't it wasn't really moral purity in the sense it was purity in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, of control, uh, wow. and and uh, so. Again, kind of a different mindset than we have today, but uh, you know, understanding that uh, that sort of baggage helps us be able to unpack that. From you know, we still see the residual effects of that in, in marriage and, and the way people think about marriage as well today. Well, and I think it it allows us to look at it and say, do we still need these concepts? If yeah. they're not working for us, it's like, why are we holding to them? And once you look at the origin, you can say, well, maybe maybe we don't need these things. Yeah, and 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 in the book, I I don't really say, hey, let's throw out marriage. I, I say, <laughs> yeah. hey, let's rethink marriage. Let's yeah. rethink about, uh, you know, yeah, it functioned this way in the past, but can it function this way in the future? Can we think yeah. about it in a new way? Can we reinvent it in a way that that really makes a lot more sense to the way in which we see the world today? Not not reflective of some patriarchal culture from, you know, thousands of years ago. Exactly. Um, so you argue that sex in the Hebrew Bible is valued for connection, bonding, and pleasure, but it doesn't have to be within marriage. Um, can you explain that? It's kind of like you picked up on the real controversial stuff, didn't you, Bridge? <laughs> which, is, which is good. It's fun. Um, yeah, well, I guess that that's a more interesting conversation for sure. Um, yeah, I, I think that I think the Hebrew in the Hebrew scriptures. And of course, there's not one way the Hebrew scriptures think about sex and marriage. There's many ways, right. but I think certainly if you look at at the uh, at the Song of Solomon, for example, yeah, um, sex and sexuality is celebrated very much so in in that book. But what makes it tricky for um, modern Bible interpreters that hold to a traditional view of marriage, quote unquote, traditional view, yeah, is that the couple is clearly not married. I mean, there's there's indications in the Song of Solomon itself that they're they're not married at all. So they're they're getting all kinds of freaky, and and they're not married, <laughs> and that that doesn't fit real well with purity culture in the in the modern evangelical uh, sense. Uh, so I think that's sort of where I was driving at is that you know while in our modern sensibilities, I should say our modern evangelical sensibilities, you know that's a real red flag. The Hebrews didn't, I mean, the ancient Hebrews didn't think twice about it. They said, oh, let's put it in the Bible. This is cool, you know. Uh, the, so, again, the way in which they saw sexuality and the way in which it related to others, I think, was very different than than the way evangelicals would assume that they would. Uh, yeah. So, in the Song of Solomon, sexuality is celebrated and seen as a way of uh, of bonding, of connecting, of of intimacy, of beauty. It's a beautiful sort of thing. 
and um, and it doesn't necessarily in that context have to be in in the context of marriage. So there's there are some positive views of sexuality in in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, but they're not necessarily married views uh, right. of of sexuality. That's so interesting. Um, okay, so another wonderful controversial thing: uh, soulmates. <laughs> Um, you take yeah. issue with the concept of a soulmate, and I kind of yeah. love that. So tell me why you take issue with the concept of a soulmate. Yeah, and it's not just me. I mean, I know a lot of marriage counselors that, that hate this idea, this this sort of con. And this is a romantic comedy idea that that's permeated uh, our co not just evangelical culture, but all of our culture. You know, the idea that there's some person that's out there somewhere. That if we just find that person, they're our soulmate, the one person for us. And if we meet them and connect with them, that that a relationship would be so easy because they just automatically get us. They'd understand us. Yeah. We'd never fight. We'd everything would always, you know, be rainbows and unicorns and and everything would just be wonderful. Uh, and then, of course, what happens is that you meet a real-life human being, and you think they're wonderful at first, but then you discover that they are, in fact, human. And they have flaws, and they have insecurities, and they have foibles, and they have they have things that drive you crazy. And then it, when you subscribe to this soul, soulmate myth, then you begin to wonder, well, clearly, if they're annoying... They're not my soulmate, because if they were my soulmate, they would never annoy me. They would... Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you begin to doubt all those sorts of things, right? And and then you become crushed because, oh, shoot, I married the wrong person, which means my soulmate is out there and has married the wrong person as well, the one yeah. person, you know? Uh, and, and again, the more you think about it, the more absurd it is, you know? Yeah. But part of what makes it difficult, too, is that, you know, again, people people assume that, that relationships aren't work, that somehow it just happens. Uh, and And if... If it's not, if it becomes work, then then I clearly have married the wrong person, or I've clearly in, in a relationship with the wrong person. When, when in fact, relationships are are can be a lot of work, and that's well, just the nature of them. It's interesting because I I always like as a as a evangelical growing up, I always thought of the like concept of soulmate as such like a Hollywood concept. You know, like so mm -hmm. many of the movies are about soulmates, and then you'd see it like in me being all judgmental of all these celebrities, I'm like, yeah, they believe in soulmates too. And that's why they keep getting divorced and remarried because it's like, <laughs> oops, married the wrong person. Right. It was a very simplistic way of looking at it and a good way to like, kind of have my Christian supremacy. Right. But um, yeah. And so, but it's, it's, yeah, that concept of soulmate, like I know some, one of my favorite things, um, my, my wife says all the time is love is a choice. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I think that's what it is. It's like, it's like learning that love is a choice. And it's like, if we can both choose to love, I mean, we can just keep doing this forever. Mm -hmm. And I mean, sometimes you have roadblocks with that and maybe there is, you know, incompatibilities, but it's like, it blows my mind though. Like how, like the concept of soulmate goes beyond people of faith it's like i don't believe mm -hmm. in god but i believe in a soulmate and it's like it's just mm -hmm. this lore that's been kind of embedded in our society even as it becomes secular it's like there's still this concept that there's one person out there for you and it's like how how do we how does anybody believe this yeah yeah and and it's it's not a it's not an old concept it's a it's a it's a relatively new idea um that sort of came about with the invention of romantic marriage and, and romantic marriage mm. is, is, uh, you know, again, as we kind of briefly touched on marriage has changed quite a bit over the centuries and the way, even though we still call it marriage, it's almost unrecognizable from, from when it started. Uh, and it wasn't until 200 years ago that people, uh, had this romantic notion that they would marry for love. Or that they would be the ones who decided who they would marry. For most of human history, the vast majority of human history, people realized that the decision of who to marry was way too of an important of decision to leave to, uh, you know, 
horny teenagers. It just it just was too too important of a decision. Yeah. And so parents would make those decisions, you know, on behalf of them because right. a marriage affected the entire family. It wasn't just, you know, two, you know, isolated individuals who were getting married. It wasn't until 200 years ago that we began this romantic notion that somehow um, each person had his had their own autonomy to be able to pick their pick a person that they could spend the rest of their life with and they would get married for reasons of love for most of human history people got married for reasons other than love they got right uh, or at least romantic love they would they would um they would marry mostly uh to uh for survival frankly yeah. i mean you know you you had to have a, a partner uh to farm with you and to make kids so that you had more people to farm and work on the farm. And, uh, oftentimes you would marry because you, there was a, um, you know, you're, you're making connections with the next village over or with the next group of people. And, and it was politically expedient in order to marry and so that you, your cattle could graze on other lands and things like that. There are very practical reasons to get married, uh, that had for, that revolved around survival. And again, it wasn't until 200 years ago that we thought that we should marry for love. And so this is all very new. And what we're discovering is that romantic love is actually not a very good foundation for getting married. <laughs> Uh, which is really, uh, that's a real bummer for a lot of people to hear because we're very romantic uh, people and we have very romantic notions of love and marriage. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, and I think we'll get into this later, but it's just kind of like, well, like this is assuming that marriage has to be for life, right? <laughs> And so we're mm -hmm. like, well, what's the best way to get married so that it'll last for your entire life? Um, which seems like an impossibility. Like when we talk to about like, like couples that have been together forever, you know, when we talk about like a 60 year marriage, you know, we can mm -hmm. say, yes, that marriage has lasted 60 years. Therefore, that's a successful marriage. But it's like, what are our metrics? If our metric is only longevity, we're not really you know, looking at marriage for all it's worth, because it's like, mm -hmm. it could be a terrible marriage for 60 years, you know, right. when you have it like hyper patriarchal and it's like, she's just meeting his every need all the time. Um, mm -hmm. It's like that we're calling that successful. It's like, I think we need better met metrics for marriage. Shouldn't we? Yeah. There, there seems to be more to being married than not getting divorced. Maybe is one yeah. way to say it. And, yeah. and, and uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, and and I think, you know, we do celebrate again. My parents had their 60th wedding anniversary yeah. uh, this summer, and um, you know, I'm I'm close enough to to them to know that their marriage wasn't perfect, you know, by yeah. any means. And there was some. I won't get into my parents' marriage, but no, it's fine. Podcast, but <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean. Just because you survived it doesn't mean it, it was necessarily good. And I think that that's part of that gen her, their generation. That's part of the reason that they could get married at, at 19, 20, 21 years old and, and stick it out for 60 years was that I don't think they, in some ways, had assumptions of happiness. They had lower yeah. expectations for marriage, I think, than than people do now. I think that's yeah. part of it. And I touch on this in the book, you know, that as marriage has evolved even more since we began marrying for love, people put higher and higher and higher expectations on what, what marriage could be. Ooh, um, yeah. So that could be okay. If you, if you actually meet those expectations, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Uh, there's a researcher named Eli Finkel that I talk a lot about in the book who I think is just doing really fascinating research out of uh, Northwestern university on marriage. And, uh, you know, his contention is exactly that, that, that uh, the higher we've sort of gone up in, in our expectations for marriage, the higher the divorce rate gets, mm. uh, because, yeah. because the more likely you'll be disappointed. If you're all your expectation in marriage is just to survive and make it to the next day, you'll probably be married for life. You know, yeah. I mean, well, you yeah. will be by definition, I guess, uh, but uh but, you know, if your expectation is that your spouse will be your best friend and your lover and will somehow um, 
meet every emotional need that you possibly have and make you a self-actualized human being. Um, most of us are not going to have that. I mean, just to be really frank about it, I mean, it's that's really difficult. And it takes a lot yeah. of time. And it takes, you know, most of us have jobs <laughs> and kids yeah. and responsibilities and things that we're doing. And so it, it, it puts a lot of weight on a marriage to have really super high expectations for it. And, and um, when you have, I mean, expectations are, are, um, are easily, are th- when, ex- when we have high expectations, they're easily thwarted. And, and yeah. so uh, when we're, we're disappointed, that's when those marriages end. And so, uh, so I think the book is, 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 is an attempt to say, Hey, let's, for some of us, I think we need to reevaluate our expectations of, 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 of what marriage is and, and what we get out of this. If, 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 because divorce sucks and I can tell yeah. you twice over, it sucks and it's hard. It's difficult. Yeah. Uh, it tears at the fabric of, of, you know, there's kids involved. I mean, there's collateral damage beyond just the two of you as well. Yeah. And it's financially, it sucks. I mean, there's a lot of things that are just awful about it. And, and, um, so I think again, part of my motivation in writing is trying to help people not have to go through that kind of pain. Yeah. Well, they, and, you know, as you're talking, I think about it too. Like, it's like when you, when you get married, you're like, okay, so what is a normal marriage supposed to look like? When in reality, mm-hmm. it could be like, Hey, you, you two kids figure it out. Like you can make your marriage, whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, mm-hmm. what's working for you. And like, I'm realizing more and more too, that it's like, I have my own things. She has her own things. And sometimes things intertwine. And I think mm-hmm. my expectation starting out was that we would have things together all the time you know? And so like mm-hmm. learning that togetherness and that separateness, I think that might be the key to a happy marriage right there is like figuring out your separateness and your togetherness and just setting that up because it's like, right. you cannot. And I think you talk about this in the book too, to get back to your book um, <laughs> about how like not every, you know, you can't expect that one person to meet your every need. It's like, we need, you know, a society we need to live within society engage engage with people who meet our needs rather than just mm-hmm. finding that one mm-hmm. person that meets our needs right yeah that illusion again it's the soulmate illusion that there's a super person out there a superman a superwoman super that's gonna that's gonna meet all of those yeah and i had that expectation too at at, at 23 the first time yeah. i got married you know that we're gonna yeah. do everything together we're gonna yeah we're gonna think exactly alike and we're gonna you know, have the same hobbies and uh, same interests, and and uh, yeah, you quickly figure out that uh, that's that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I'm uh, 22 years in, so. Oh, good yeah. for you! Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty good run. Um, yeah. <laughs> um. So. Uh, Hopefully, it's not over. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> keep, keep Still that going. Run going. <laughs> Um, you argue that up until the 18th century, uh, Christian virtues were collective, um, mm-hmm. but they then became individualistic. Um, can you explain yeah. that? I found that really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And this gets back again to the purity culture and um, notions of romantic marriage and how, how those things all were kind of intertwined uh, in into one big mess. Um for most of Christian history, you know, Jesus defined, you know, what it meant to be a good neighbor in pretty specific ways uh, about, you know, loving people who were marginalized, who uh, who people we came in contact with, who whose lives were falling apart, uh, people who uh, were poor and people who um, were sick. Uh, and for most of Christian history, that was the case that uh, that's the way we measured whether or not we were doing our job right as followers of Jesus. Um, and what it meant to be a virtuous person was that we were engaged in our communities. We were engaged in ways that that made our communities a better place because uh, those were the priorities of Jesus. But then we made this really weird left turn in which uh, we began to define virtue not in terms of how the value that we brought to our communities, but we defined defined virtue in terms of our private passions. In other words, how we were able to 
be quote unquote pure sexually. And so, um, I mean, and I grew up again in the evangelical world, like, like you did bridge, you know, to where I really, every time I heard about righteousness or unrighteousness or, or holiness or unholiness, I always thought about it in terms of, uh, sexuality. I mean, it was yeah. just a weird, it's a bizarre sort of way of, of, uh, uh of seeing the world, but it was, that was the shift that happened a couple hundred years ago in terms of, uh, theologically, we, we, we quit thinking of virtue in terms of the way in which we saw our neighbors and saw it instead in terms of our own private passions. Hmm. Yeah. And that I like, I like to call it uh, masturbation Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I was in, uh, when I was in creative writing, actually in high school, I was kind of surprised to hear my teacher say this, but he was like, don't write masturbation poetry. And then he explained how it's like, poetry that's good for you but it's not good for anyone else and so i'm like i was i was gonna write a book actually called masturbation christianity but um it, it it's really bad like i i'm realizing I'm, I'm like i stepped away from reading scripture for like four months and now i'm re-engaging it and i'm just mm -hmm. doing like one of these like devotionals on the you version of the bible and um, mm -hmm. every time I read the devotional, it's like I'm rewriting it in my brain. I'm like, no, actually, this is what I think. <laughs> and and because it's like it's like um, I think what really turned me off of the Bible for a moment was like when you talk about the whole David and Bathsheba thing. And there's all the con controversy around that where people are just like, no, Bathsheba sinned. It wasn't just David that sinned and all this stuff. Right. And it's like, well, it's like David you know, and we can talk, I've, I've talked about this ad nauseum, but um, what I find so staggering about all of this um, is that it's like David called this woman to his chamber. She didn't have any choice. Like, there's no way she would have had any choice in the matter, in the matter. And then, um, and then Uriah, like he murders Uriah to like cover up the fact that he, he banged this lady. Um, yeah and got her pregnant. Um, and then what does he do? He goes into the Psalms and this was like one of the devotionals I was in where they just like totally were like, Oh, this is the Psalm David wrote after he uh, did all that stuff with uh, Bathsheba. And it's like, and he says against you and you alone have I sinned. And I was like, Oh, this is what I am hating so much about Christianity right now is like, I just want to be right with God. And it's like, I need to be right with you so I can be right with God. And it's yeah. like, and you're, you're short-circuiting like, your relationships with other people. There. Sorry? <laughs> I'd say Uriah may have, have some things to say about uh, who was sinned against in that context, yeah. Well, it's the difference between um, – and I there's a creator. I, I don't know what her name is. I'll put it in the show notes. But um, there's this creator who talks about horizontal versus vertical morality and how a lot of Christians are kind of stuck in vertical morality, which mm -hmm. totally ignores like horizontal morality. And our world is kind of stuck in horizontal morality where it's like, how are you treating other human beings? Right. And a lot of our culture, you know, when it, when it comes to like challenging the behavior of individuals is like, how are you treating other people? And the church is just like, Oh, that's so dumb. Like, no, you need to be right with God. <laughs> and it's like, I, ah. <laughs> and so I'm like, I, I'm realizing yeah, and, now that and I'm, now I'm, that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I was just going to say now that I, 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 uh, I'm kind of outside of the church world and I'm, yeah. and I'm working in a, in a, in a secular environment, it, it strikes me how absurd that is to people yeah. who aren't, aren't part of that. It's yeah. like, Oh no! It doesn't matter if I if I'm a total asshole to you. It, yeah. You know, so long as God loves me, I'm okay. You know, yeah. it's like whatever, dude. Like, yeah, it's a, you know, I'm glad God forgave you, but uh, we still hate yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, and I and I guess what I'm realizing now is like I got so interested in humanism, and I thought humanism's just this most beautiful thing. It's like let's just make the world a better place. And so now that I'm re-engaging scripture, I'm like, I'm a humanist first and a theologian mm -hmm. second. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to argue that Jesus was the same. You know, mm -hmm. like when people were like, 
he went and healed someone on the Sabbath and someone's like, hey, you can't do that. And he's like, yeah, actually, <laughs> he's like, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath uh -huh. was made for man. Right. Which we'll we'll get to your turn on that. <laughs> yeah. In a bit. You know, yeah. Let me piggyback on the yeah. on the David and Uriah thing too, because yeah. what I think is interesting in that, um when it's Nathan the prophet that comes to David, right? And yeah. tells the parable of the lamb and the and the you know the man who had all the sheep and the guy who only had one lamb and the the rich man who stole his lamb and whatnot. Yeah. And then you're the man, David. He you know, he <laughs> turned and made those little twist and and then David, oh, you're right, I did. I stole this guy's lamb. You know, again, there's there's a mindset there, there's a patriarchal ownership sort of thing. Yeah. A hundred percent that's going on there. Yeah. You yeah. know, that that nobody questions that that like Uriah clearly owned Bathsheba and 100%. you stole her possession. That's the mm -hmm. sin. Your sin is against Uriah. Your sin is not against, you know, Bathsheba or the way in which you exploited her, yeah. uh, or sexually harassed her. Well, they said he raped her, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's like, and she's not a person. She's property. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So when, when, you know, you're doing your devotionals, keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah there's, 100%. There's, another, there's another world that's going on, and and yeah, I I, I don't like it personally. That's not yeah. uh, that's not the way I see the world. That's not the way I choose to see the world. That's not the way I think that we move forward in in the universe to make this place a better place for our kids. Yeah, we can be better. Like it's like we, we can, can take it next that. step. Um, yeah, and that's I mean that's one of the things. So the previous podcast episode was um, on being post Christian. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, Maria Francesca. Oh, I forgot her last name. Uh oh, <laughs> it was fantastic. But um, it's kind of like it's moving beyond, you know, kind of the baby food of Christianity, which is what kind of Keith Giles argues in Sola Dies. I always want to say Deuce. I make that joke every time. <laughs> Deuce. Um, <laughs> But he kind of argues like how it's like, you know, we kind of have these basics teachings that are in the scriptures, but it's like we can build beyond that. Like we can move on beyond mm -hmm. that. And it's like we don't have to say see women as property, you know, just like we don't have to be OK with slavery. Right. Like we can build on it. What's the you know, what's the spirit behind this? You know, and it's like what's right. the progression that scripture is trying to give us? And it's like, right, if we right. can do that, I think scripture can still be useful. But if we're going to use it to like try to, you know, go back to mm -hmm. when women were property, it's like, I, ah, I don't, and, and there's so many people that are trying to do that. And it's like mm -hmm. so depressing to see that. I'm like, why are you, why are you guys trying to make everything worse? Yeah. It's maybe it seems simple. I don't, I'm not sure either. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, it's easier to like just look at it and say it's black and white. It's written here, and it's mm -hmm, like we'll just do mm -hmm. what's written here. And it's like, yeah, well, then you don't have to do all this growing as a human being. Like it, it's the same people too that are just kind of like God never changes. And it's like, yeah, you seem to be saying that so you don't have to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you have a bit of a beef with the concept of purity. Can you outline some of the uses you have with? purity as a virtue like i think you touched on this a bit but do you think there's a little more you have to say about that yeah you know the notion of purity i think just generally is is uh can can be really dangerous and brian mclaren does a lot of work on this that i really like he talks about how if we if we define ourselves in terms of uh purity and un and 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 lack of purity that means i'm pure and people who are not like me are unpure. Hmm. And if you are unpure, then all of a sudden you are a little less human than me. And so there's this sort of logical progression of, um, you know, and if you look at every genocide that's ever taken place in human history, what's the language that they use, right? I mean, they use the language of unpurity. Um, huh. And so... I think it's a it's a pretty dangerous slope to be on uh, when we start using that kind of language of pure and unpure. 
um, because um, when we begin to see people in those in those sorts of ways, we begin to dehumanize them, and that's a short step from, well, killing them, frankly. And um, so, I, I yeah, there's a lot of dangers in that beyond just even, you know, um, it, it messes up people's sexualities. Um, totally. Which, I mean, I I again, thirty years as a pastor, you see a lot of stuff, and and I think purity culture has done so much damage to um, people's sense of of sexuality. You know that that it's it's really really hard for some people to get get over that. I mean, their sense of of sexuality just in and of itself being an unpure thing. You know, because we tell kids all the time, right? You know, uh, or evangelicals tell kids, you know, remain pure, remain pure, remain pure. And then on your wedding night, flip a switch and go crazy. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know. um, That's a big thing, too, like for a, like, young marriage to recover from. Because it's like this young man now, he's like, okay, now I'm going to try all the stuff. Right. And it's like, I have the right now to try mm-hmm. all the stuff. And it's like, this is not like the objectification, right? It's not this thing that's mutual. It's more like, okay, now I can unleash all of my, all of my nasty desires. And like, and I think like for me too, and I, I don't think this was intentional in my upbringing, but I did have kind of this dichotomy between that kind of girl and the virtual virtuous girl. And I had this idea that there's the kind of girl I fool around with. And then there's the girl I actually marry. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. it took a lot to deconstruct that and be able to see like people as people, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of work to do in that, that like Mm -hmm. you said, pure and unpure. It's like, if we're going to, you know, make that dichotomy. It's like, we're going to dehumanize those who are not pure. And that's a big Mm -hmm. problem. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, the, the, the technical phrase that you're talking about bridge, and this came about, it was Sigmund Freud saw this like 150 years ago. Um, he called it the Madonna horror complex and we still have that Mm. around, right. You know, Mm. this idea that, that men desire the whore, but want to marry the Madonna. And uh, so we want, you know, men want to marry somebody who's pure and, you know, um, innocent and is not sexual, sort of asexual uh, and marry them, have children with them and whatnot. But really what they desire is the whore, you know, that Mm. we somehow separate, you know, and I'm talking about men in a very stereotypical way. Yeah. Um, yeah. That we have a tendency, that there's a cultural tendency. And this just isn't among evangelicals. This is among uh, probably all all of uh, Western culture, right? To separate women as, as either things that we desire and respect uh, and – or as either something we respect and and want to be a part of or somebody that we just use and desire. Right. And for some reason it's harder for men to sort of make that connection between the two. And women aren't stupid. They they certainly they pick up on that and they know yeah. that uh if they act like a whore that they're not going to be respected. And if they um but yet they also I mean they're they're sexual beings too. You know, just yeah. like just like men are, and um, and so trying to work again. There's just so many layers to to this purity culture that sort of messed us up, and uh, yeah. the way in which we see it. And again, not even evangelicals. I mean, this is this is true of of Western civilization, generally speaking. Well, that's and in, and I think that's something that's so beautiful about like the sex positivity movement is like to see like you know. I have lots of lots of friends on Twitter that'll post like thirst traps and stuff like that. And I'm like, it's beautiful. You're hot. Like we can be cool with that. And I'm realizing that there's this, you know, for me, it's like I've I'm I'm fostering the ability to admire beauty without wanting to exploit it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I think that is the sweet spot for for me anyways. That's where I'm at. Like I'm just like it's because I'm like I'm I am a sexual being and I can say that's, you know, that is a beautiful person. (laughs) 
and be cool with that. And that's as far yeah. as it goes, right? I'm not going to uh -huh. be going and DMing them now, right? That's when I'm crossing the line, right? And so, yeah, and I hadn't thought about mm -hmm. it until you just mentioned it. And I, I, I haven't thought this through a whole lot, but I, I think you're onto something, Bridge. I think that, you know, evangelical culture doesn't make that differentiation. We always, you know, it, it jumps from desire. You know, you don't want to desire somebody because you'll exploit them. And mm -hmm. there's like, there's no differentiation between desire and exploitation, which is, which is why, you know, modest is hottest or whatever. <laughs> I mean, they have this sort of mentality that, well, women can't, you know, dress in a particular way because men will exploit them. You know, yeah. maybe men shouldn't do that. <laughs> I love, I love making fun of that whole, like men are visual. And I'm like, yeah, women don't have eyes. <laughs> All right. So you raise a really interesting point about the pro-life movement. Um, the Netherlands has the lowest abortion yeah, rate. All the controversial stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. We're doing all the controversy. So Netherlands has the lowest abortion rate as a result of sex education and effective contraception. But the pro-life movement is more so obsessed with trying to control people's private passions. Um, why mm -hmm. do you think that is? Well, you know, again, evangelicals are, are obsessed with sex. I mean, yeah. uh, it, it really is a, a, a bizarre obsession if, if you step take a step back from it and, and, and look at it. I mean, the amount of time and energy that goes into into thinking about sex. And when it comes to pro-life, to me, it seems really obvious, again, once I've stepped out of that whole evangelical culture, it seems really obvious. Evangelicals aren't really interested in preventing abortions because if they're interested in preventing abortions, they would go to the Netherlands and they would say, hey, they're doing really good at preventing abortions. How do we how do we prevent abortions here and be like them? Yeah. Uh, that's not the question they're asking. They're, what they're saying is, oh, well, then let's do abstinence-only education, which is absurd, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I mean... you got those 20-year-olds uh, again. It's like you're not going to talk them out of getting it on. Like, that's... There's, there's no amount of rationality that's going <laughs> to... And I can tell you from being a former 16-year-old, <laughs> yeah. yeah. there's no amount of rationality that's going to no. talk you out of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So... To me, it's obvious. This is not what not what they're interested in. And, you know, abortion makes it is an, is an easy issue for for evangelicals because um, the unborn, they don't they don't ask, demand anything of us. Right. They don't they're they don't ask us to be fed. They yeah. don't show up uh, as panhandlers to us. You know, they um, they're not uh, demanding more money. Uh, they, they ask nothing from us. And so it's really easy to advocate for them because, uh, they, they, they ask no demands of us whatsoever. So it, it's a perfect thing for evangelicals because it's something that is a result of sex that they don't like. And, yeah. um, and sex that was created from people who are impure. So, um, it just makes a perfect issue for for evangelicals um in a in a really hypocritical way that's so interesting like what you're saying because it, it resonates with what um i'll put a link to this podcast um there's this podcast i listened to what that was all about that um sound of freedom movie mm, and yeah, um yeah what they were talking about is like just how unrealistic i i've never i'm not gonna see the film i'm okay with that um, yeah. but, um, apparently what happens in the film is like two children are put like in a crate and shipped overseas to be sex trafficked, which they're like, that's never happened. Like that's expensive. Like, why would you do that? Um, but like what they were talking about, like with like rescuing, you know, these sex trafficking victims and like the reality is like what's, what's usually happening is like, you have like your queer child who gets kicked out of their house and they're like couch surfing. And they really need a place to stay. And someone says, yeah, you can stay here, but 
you have to do this thing for me, right? And that's how kids mm-hmm. are typically mm-hmm. sex trafficked. Well, that's probably the majority of them. A lot of them are family members too, right? But um, but this whole like sex rescue thing where it's like, you know, we found these, like even, you know, these like a, it's like a massage, um, whatever, massage parlor, massage parlor, um, where they have all these women and the police interview them and they're like, hey, are you a prostitute or were you sex trafficked? If you're a prostitute, we'll jail you. Um, oh, you were sex trafficked. Okay. Right. And that's how we get kind of these like whole like, oh, there's a ring of like sex trafficking or whatever. But even like if they are rescuing these people from sex trafficking, Mm -hmm. they then say, all right, we stop them from being sex trafficked, which means they now lost their place to stay. And if they were making money off of it, they've lost it, too. But it's like that's where the Christian compassion ends. They're like, we're just going to stop them from being sex trafficked. And now they're rescued. And where do they go? Maybe a homeless shelter? I don't know. Like, they're, yeah. they are people in poverty, but it's like, we just want to stop the impurity of them right, being sex right. They're not interested in them as human beings, as holistic yeah. human beings. Yeah, yeah, and the same with abortion, right? I mean, yeah. you, don't, you don't hear evangelicals saying, you know, well, we know the reason you're getting this abortion is because you can't afford the kids, so come live yeah. at my house. Yeah. I'll pay for all your health care. You know, up through the first couple of years of this kid's life and uh, help, you know, give you the financial wherewithal to be able to take care of this kid. And then we'll put it up for adoption. And you can, I mean, they're not interested in that. They just and say, I mean, and they may, do like, it. there may be people who are, but by and large, mm-hmm. the movement is who cares about that? Right. Let's just stop the impurity portion of it. Right. And then in terms of human trafficking, too, it's like, I think it's interesting that it's, that the thing that gets people is sex trafficking as opposed to labor trafficking, right? So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I live in I live in Arizona. There are lots of people who come across the border who are undocumented. Who right. we have a huge shortage in construction jobs here. Yeah, you know, so there's this is a huge issue here where I live. Um, the problem is that there's tons of exploitation that goes on with contractors who hire these, you know, undocumented workers and then they pay them squat. They hardly right. pay them less than minimum wage. But who are they going to go to? You know, they are essentially being uh, trafficked as workers, right? Yeah. I mean, exploited as workers. I mean, it's the same yeah. thing. Don't hear a lot of outrage about that. No. <laughs> you know? No. And Uh, that's, I mean, that's that dehumanization and it's like, and there's mm -hmm. an impurity because those people came into the country without documentation. So it's like we Mm -hmm. dehumanize the impure again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you talk a bit about the concept of marriage being a temporary thing. And this is interesting because I think around the time that I actually was reading your book, um, mm-hmm. There's a therapist, Mike the Therapist, on Twitter. I'll link him okay. too. Um, he said that he we completely change our personalities every four years. Like it's actually like a psychological reality that our personalities mm-hmm. change. Um, and he argues the same thing that it's like marriage should be something that you reconsider every four years because you've changed who you are. Um, there are societies where in which marriage does give one chance to renew um, periodically. I think you you talked about that. How there are chances to re- renew um, your marriage. Mm-hmm. I used to actually always say to my wife, "I'm like, so when are our vows up for renewal?" <laughs> which isn't really a concept here, but um, but there are societies where it is. Hey, yeah. Well, um, there are societies where it's been proposed. Um, oh, okay. Uh, I uh, the there's a an actually an old Muslim practice of um, and I forget there's a uh, uh, there's a, a a word for it that I can't remember, but they would essentially do a practice marriage. They would say, "Hey, we're going to give this a whirl for six months or twelve months, and at the end of that six or twelve months, we decide, yeah, this is something. You know, it's like test it's a test drive." Uh, that they would do. And um, 
you know, at the end, it'd be like, yeah, I'm not sure this is the right thing or yeah, this is good. Let's do this. Um, Mm. which is kind of interesting concept, but, um, there was a, there was a politician in France who ran on, that was one of the platforms a few years back who ran on the platform of all marriages will have a seven year expiration date. And at the end of seven years, um, you have to have, you have to renew it every seven years if you want to stay married, and and uh, with the assumption that yeah you know people change things change situations change, uh, and I think part of the caveat was if you have children it goes from every seven years to permanent you know uh, hmm. or until the kids are eighteen or something like that which is kind of interesting but hmm. um, yeah one of the things that marriage as an institution has really um, that's changed over the over the centuries is that human beings live longer you know Um, right so when you were when life expectancy was 35 years uh you know when you said till death do us part at a wedding vow it it meant something different than now when your life expectancy might be 85 95 years you know i mean right it's a much bigger commitment now than it was you know when life expectancy was a lot shorter so that's one of the other dynamics that's taking place, sort of recognizing that um, human beings living longer, that creates some problems in terms of uh, interpersonal relationships. For some people, it works fine. Some people, it's great. They adjust. They, their marriage evolves over the years. You know, they, they find ways to continually uh, reinvent it and rethink about it and uh, change with the dynamics. You know, and, and every marriage does, you know. Uh, Bridge, I'm sure you found this in your marriage, you know, is you, you go from the, the newlywed, you know, phase, you know, starry eyed to sort of like a more realistic perception of each other. And then you have kids and then that changes the whole dynamic because now you've yeah. got, you know, um, you know, your attention's focused in other places, your affections are, you know, and it's revolving around other things. And then as the kids grow up, you know, that sort of changes, they become more independent. And then, then they leave the house and you become empty nesters, you know, and, and now you're, you're, you're back to this other relationship in which it's not focused around your kids. And that's, that's a huge shift for a lot of people, you know? Yeah. And then, and then people retire, you know, and they quit working. Yeah. And, and I have friends, I was just talking to somebody this weekend, you know, their, their partner has just retired and they're like, I spent about as much time as I wanted to with this person before they retired. <laughs> and now they're going to be around all the time, you know, wow. I don't know what I'm going to do, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, those are all, I mean, and those are just natural things that happen in every marriage as, as time goes on. You know, you have crises, you have financial crises, you know, uh, somebody dies, a fi- you know, family member dies. or what, I mean, there's always things that come up that sort of throw speed bumps along the way in, in every marriage. That's just the nature of it. And so, um, so it is a huge commitment to say, you know, till death do we part. Um, with a brain that is not fully developed, you know, and not really understanding the nature of life. Um, So I'm not, I guess I, you know, to be clear, you know, people who haven't read the book, I'm not really advocating for, hey, all marriages should be completely temporary. I'm just simply saying, I think that marriage is different now than it used to be uh, centuries ago. And we, uh, when when it was a time in which marriage women had to be married in order to survive there was a time in which that was the case that's no longer the case you know there's a lot of women that are very happy to never be married um and can survive just fine without without a man in their life uh, or a partner in their life hmm. and um so you know the way in which we see marriage i think needs to adjust in terms of like uh, the social pressures, I guess, around that. So many things we could still explore. Um, <laughs> but I just want to kind of close with your extrapolation of Jesus and the Sabbath, where you said <laughs> marriage was made for humankind, not humankind for marriage. Um, how do you think that shift can help us? Yeah, and of course, yeah, I'm stealing from Jesus' words. I'm extrapolating from Jesus' words. You know, uh, humankind was made for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath for humankind. 
sort of recognize that all institutions, uh, including including uh, things like churches and and other things, they are made for the benefit of humanity, right? Not humanity for their benefit. And when we yeah. get that inverse thing, and then when I was a pastor, this was always you know the the thing that always got me into trouble is I would say that to my denominational leaders, you know. That uh, you know the denomination exists to serve us, not you, uh, you, not the local church to serve the denomination, right? Yeah. As long as you're serving us, it's 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 going in the right direction. When we, when you think that we exist to serve you, that's when things get really messed up. Uh, and the same is true with marriage. When we, if we think that there's this sort of perfect um, institution out there called marriage that we all have to sort of conform to. It, it it creates a lot of grief in our life because none of us will will attain to that particular ideal. But when we recognize that the institution is there to serve us to make our lives better, then then we can we can leverage it in ways that make us better human beings, make better communities, make healthier decisions, make better families. Frankly, um, as a result of that, love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Um, thank you, Bridge. Um, how do we get my listeners in contact with your work? Yeah, uh, I got a web page, DanaHicks.org, uh, okay. where I just kind of post some writings and musings and whatnot, uh, some writing projects I'm working on. Um, uh, you can follow me on uh I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Dana Hicks author, I think is my Twitter handle there. Um, there's a contact page on my website. If you want to reach out to me directly, uh, you can do that as well. But um, yeah, love to hear from folks. Uh, I, I really enjoy this conversation and, and uh, I think it's, I think it's not only interesting. I think it's, I think it's really important conversation to have for, for, um, for folks, especially people like myself, I, yeah, I, like, like any author or any preacher, you know, I write to myself first, you know, what are the things I need to, to sort of articulate and be clear about in my own life? And, and I think for me, you know, working through these ideas, I think was, was helpful. Okay. And do pick up a copy of this book. I'll have a link to the Amazon link for that too. That's all right. Yeah, of course. Awesome. Thank you.